prayer. This is the uh, this is very important as we turn to God's word. Uh, just as a way of review, let me review a couple of things. Last week, just very quickly, we talked about Ephesians one, and we said what Ephesians one was was one of the grandest, greatest, glorious uh, passages in all of Scripture. And um, as I continue to study over the last um, few days, even for this message, um, almost everybody I, I listened to or read uh, kept explaining the majesty of this text. And the reason we're, we're reading it week after week is because it just bears repeating uh, of these great truths. And last week, we, we said that in this majestic text, we see the work of salvation by the triune God, or in other words, we see the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in this text um, bringing us salvation. And last week, we, we, I got halfway through or somewhat of the way through a sermon on the work of the Father. And so God the Father, according to Paul in our text, uh, it says that he basically planned our salvation. If you would look with me, um, to verse 4, and we're going to jump right in there. It's speaking of, it says, go back to verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father. So there's God. He's the Father of who? And, and we discussed last time, this is one of the very first times we see him referred to as the Father of Jesus uh, Christ, or Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Messiah. So in other words, Paul's tying this all together. He's saying this Jesus that all of you Old Testament folks the Jewish people were looking forward to. This is the God that I'm talking about and whose name I'm writing to you. And he's the father of Jesus. He's blessed us in Christ. Now there's two words, those preposition in, I hope to make a point of this morning, but it's in Christ. Then he says he gives us a spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in verse four, it says, even as he chose us again, preposition in him, and then before the foundation of the world. God, the Bible, has this great doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that God's in control, and so God chooses us. And last week, I hope you took away, no matter where you fall down on this great doctrine, is that God loved you and knew about you before he ever created the world, and he chose you in Christ. He loved you. It was something he decided. It's, this, was, this was God making a choice, and he was, in other words, choosing you. And I sure hope that you understood that it was in love. It was nothing that you do or that you can do. It's nothing that is meritorious with merit. Meritorious. It's nothing that is because of our merit do we gain God's love. You understand that. As a matter of fact, let me just say this. This is nowhere in the notes. I just want to start here. And I want us to all to come to understand this when it comes to God's love. You can do nothing today to make God love you less. And you can do nothing right now to make God love you more. Because God loves you unconditionally. It's out of his character. Isn't that good news? And so this God chose us, he loved us, and he set a plan. 
And, and that is the next step. He, he predestined us. He set a plan. What is that purpose that he set for us? And this is still from last week's sermon. In verse 4, it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. We can't think too much about this concept of being holy and blameless. That's God's plan for us, is to be holy and blameless before him. And we're going to talk, hopefully, of how this happens. Some people try to separate accepting Jesus Christ from living as Jesus is living as Jesus is Lord of your life. But there's no distinction. There's no distinction between justification and sanctification. Those are the words. Justification means to be made right, and sanctification means to be set apart. So what God is doing is he's making us right before him. Again, nothing we've done. It's in Christ, and he's setting us apart as his own. As a matter of fact, let me give you just a couple of things. In justification, big word, making us right, God declares us positionally holy. In sanctification, God is progressively making us holy. So Brother Brian made a statement that he hoped we would be different today because we've been here. What he was talking about is this doctrine. We didn't confer. I didn't know what he was going to say. But what Brian is saying is, some of you could have walked in here without knowing Jesus as your Savior, without being in a right relationship with God. And so because God's Word is going to be uh, read, it's we're going to sing it, and because we're now preaching it, the Holy Spirit could be speaking to your heart. You could understand that you're sinful and that you need to respond to God's love and you could be justified. For most of us in this room this morning, we've made that decision or that's what's happened. We've, we've come to a place where we are in a relationship with God through Christ. And so God is prog progressively making us holy. Now, when Brother Brian said, I hope you're different, I hope what that meant is today you're growing in holiness. You're growing a little deeper in your faith with Jesus. I hope that you're not the same person you were the day you first found out about Jesus. And I sure hope you're not going backwards. Because if that's the case, you need to slam on the brakes, turn from whatever reason, whichever direction you're going in, and start moving towards Christ, right? And so I hope this morning we're going to be a little different. And now here's the really good news. It's called glorification. I went to a, a memorial service yesterday to a dear friend. Um, and man, I just my whole life has been around this guy. And we went to the memorial service and they were talking about him positionally being in heaven. Well, when a believer dies, when someone in Christ dies, do you realize that God transforms us in a twinkling of an eye to, to, to the image of Christ. We're going to be not the Son of God, the, the part of the Trinity, but we're going to be as, in, it's in this text, God's going to do something miraculous to us, and so heaven is our home, and we're going to be in our glorified state. That's good news, amen? And that's just the beginning. So what is holiness? Well, I'm going to move quickly this morning. But holiness, this holiness that God's moving us toward, is to being totally pure, loving what is right, and hating what is evil. The clearest description of holiness is loving righteousness, 
hating wickedness, and doing it all in joy. God's not a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want to take away our fun, but he wants us to not like the things that are evil. He actually wants us to hate evil. Do you know what evil is? You could probably see some things. You could pick up the newspaper or pick out your phone and see on social media some really bad things happening. God hates evil things. And we should love righteous things. We should love the things of the Lord. And the truth is, when you're on that track, let me just tell you, it is fun and exciting to be a follower of Jesus. Oh man, not one amen. And I think that's what's wrong. I think we don't think that it's fun to be living in a right relationship with Jesus. But let me testify to you as a man who's not always lived in that right relationship with Jesus. It ain't no fun there, I can tell you. What seems like fun for a second sure fades fast. So the other thing that he's doing in verse 5, we're continuing to move right through this text, is it says that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Predestined. It means, so if God chose us, he has set a plan out for us. He's established a plan for our lives. Now, that doesn't mean he's creating robots. It just means that he's created this plan and that he's going to use these things in our lives to bring us to this plan. And I want to give you the secret this morning because it's one of the misquoted verses in all of Scripture. So please, if you have your Bible, if you have your phone, I want everybody that can read this morning to please turn to Romans. And if you can't read, look over the the shoulder of somebody else and they're going to explain it to you kids because I want you guys to understand this in Romans 8 28 this is good news this is what the Christian life is about this is why Paul was all excited in this majestic text he's talking about this and so what is he predestined us to in other words what's what's the path he set out for us and here's one of those misquoted verses from the Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now I want to stop. Verse 28 is misquoted, and it's misquoted by Christians more than anybody, but the world will say this. When something happens, the world says, well, you know all things work together for good. That's not what the Bible says. All things do not work together for good. Amen? I'm just going what the Bible says. So let's look at the text. It says that we know that all things work together for who? For those who love God. And for who? For a called according to his purpose. Well, what is his purpose? Let's go to verse 29. For those he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Jump down in verse 30. And for those he predestined, he called. From those he called, he justified. And from those he justified, he also glorified. Do you see it? He's turning us into the image of Christ. He's making us more like Jesus today so we can be like Jesus for all of eternity. Holy and blameless as sons and daughters in Christ. This fifth, eighth chapter, don't, don't leave it. Please don't leave it. 
Because I want you to say, I want you to see in verse 15 of this same chapter, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, a tender description in the language of the day, something like daddy or papa. Now, every time I preach and I talk about fathers, I understand, I didn't always understand this, I, I, I learned this the hard way, that not everybody has a great perception of a parent. It could be a mother or a father. I learned that preaching on Father's Day and Mother's Day. But folks, no matter what your image of a parental role or an adult role in your life, let me say this. This perfect, majestic, glorious, loving, unconditionally loving, holy, amazing God is not a cosmic killjoy wanting to zap you. He wants an intimate relationship and he's adopting you into his family to the point that you can cry, Abba, Father. Have, have you ever, I mean, have you, if you've never experienced, maybe you've seen it, when a little kid gets in trouble or is in need and they, they run to their daddy. Um, one of the toughest things that, as an adult parent that I, that I have found, meaning a parent, I'm still on a parent, to Courtney and Emily as an adult male and their adults, is I can't fix everything. I have to tell you, I used to, I used to love it when the girls would run to me and I could fix their problems, although sometimes that creates monsters, but um, because there comes a point in time, Daddy can't fix it. But let me tell you something about God our Father. When you're in that situation and you don't know where else to turn, we can run to the throne room of heaven and we can interrupt the king at any time and say, hey, Dad, I've got a real problem here. As a matter of fact, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said, you pray like this. How did he say, oh, great and glorious God? And no, he said, pray like this. Although that's great to recognize God in your prayers that way. But he, he, he taught them to pray first as our Father in heaven. Just term of endearment, a relational God. Do, do you get that this morning? God loves you and has set this course for you to be his child. Everything that is his is yours. Do you, do you, do you really understand what that means? Everything. And, number, and then we move to verse 6. Go with me to verse 6. And again, I apologize. I'm moving fast or we will be like Martin Lloyd-Jones. I looked it up. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent like almost two or 300 sermons in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we aren't going to do that. He took like every word. But notice in verse 6 it says that to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed it in the beloved. The reason we're bookending our worship service, at least for the next couple of weeks, with the doxology and glory of Patre, the glory to the Father, is because we're here as a family to worship. We're here to worship this great God who is our Father. And so I want to ask you this morning, what are you worshiping? Where is your attention? 
And this may be a, just, a, again, this is not even really the message I'm working towards, but it may be just a good gut check for all of us this morning. Just think about the last 167 hours. Where were your time and attention? What had priority in your life? And did it start with God? Did you, were you living as a praiseworthy creature into the, to this holy and magnificent God who has adopted you in Christ, who's made you holy and blameless in Christ? Maybe, as I suggested last week, we should begin by thanking God that you've chosen me. Thank you, God, for loving me. Thank you, God, for making me holy. Thank you, God, that you don't look at my sin and my faults, but you want to make me blameless. Thank you, God, that when I die, I'm going to be exactly who you want me to be, conformed in the image of Christ, not because of my merits, but because of what you've done. Thank you, God. So how is that possible? Well, look with me now to the work of the Son. That's this week's message. And I've got about 10 minutes to do this. And we're going to get through this. Look at verse 7. In Him. Okay, I'm going to stop. Now, I've said this repeatedly, but I want you to get the point. There's this, this preposition, in Him. Let's, let's look real quickly. In verse 3, it's in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In verse 4, he's chosen us in him. You can keep going. I'm probably going to miss one. In verse 6, it's in him. It's in the beloved. In verse 7, it's, it's in him we have redemption. We go on down to verse 10. It says that he's united all things in him. In verse 11, in him we've attained an inheritance. Go right over to verse 13. In him you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. You believed in Him. Do you see what Paul's saying? It's in Christ. And so we move to this next phase of the second person, the work of Christ or the work of the Son. If I would ask you this morning, what's your greatest need this morning? What would you say? I have to ask you to really ask yourself that question. Because when I talk to people and when I talk to people and people talk to me, I hear a lot of needs come out. I need this to go better. I need more of this. I need whatever. But brothers and sisters, what Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and I'm going to go to a point here, is our greatest need, our greatest need that this world who has who has almost numbed themselves to this concept, the greatest thing we face is our sin. That's our greatest need, is our sin. We come to this second section of the, this glorious scripture, and here we are at the heart of the gospel in verse 7. We come face to face with the core of the gospel. It's the core of the Christian salvation God the Father planted and purposed it, and now we're coming to God the Son who has executed it and purchased it. In verse 7, we see the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ. The first thing we must see this morning is the who. Who did our redemption come from? Again, I draw your attention for repetition to the first two words of verse 7. In Him. In Him. In who? In the Beloved. Who's the Beloved? Jesus. Who is Jesus? The Anointed One. Who is Jesus that Paul's talking about? He's saying this one that all the Old Testament prophets for 
foretold and pointed to. It's this one. It's Jesus the Christ. I said a couple of weeks ago that we are here as Christians because we have Christ. Let me say it another way. There is no Christianity without Christ, without the God-man Jesus Christ. One of my greatest fears that I've ever had in my life, and especially as I've had the opportunity from time to time, is to preach, is that people clearly don't understand the gospel. They don't understand salvation. I'm not saying I fully understand it. I understand enough to understand what it means to be saved. I understand my own salvation. I'm growing in my salvation. But when you ask a person, hey, are you a Christian? They begin with, well, I try to go to church or I try to do this. I try to be nice to my neighbors. I give wherever it is. And I was listening. David teases me a little bit. Last week I talked about about country music a little bit. But this week, listening to country music as I was driving, I realized that country music has a false gospel. And it kind, of, it kind of says this in most country music. You can kind of cuss and party on Saturday night as long as you come to church on Sunday morning. That's just not right. Or drop a 20 in the plate because mama told you to do it. That doesn't save you. That might exegete the, the, the culture around us, but that's not Christianity. Let me tell you what Christianity is. Christianity is this, and here's the good news. The good news is you can't make yourself a Christian. The good news is you can do nothing to save yourself. The good news is that there is no merit or, or no works that will ever save you. The good news is you are saved because of the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. Why am I going to heaven? Because of Jesus. Paul's making it abundantly clear. In Christ we have forgiveness. Let's go further. What does that mean? In Him we have redemption. Okay, there's a word. We're going to stop for a moment. Redemption very simply means to buy back. It means a payment of ransom for something. The illustration is real easy. Have you ever been to a pawn shop or know anybody been to a pawn shop? You take something worth value, take it and get some money. But when you want to go get it back, you have to redeem it. You have to go buy it back. And to do so, you have to pay full price, right? That's, I've never pawned anything in my life, but that's the understanding. In the Old Testament, this word redemption meant to buy a slave. Whatever the price of the slave was, you would buy them as a slave. And also it meant as... Uh, in the Old Testament, you could pay someone's way out of prison. We call that bond today. But if someone committed a crime, there would be a, a monetary value associated with the crime. You would go and pay for their freedom. You would pay for their crime, the sin they commissioned, and you could buy their freedom. In the New Testament, there was, there's this idea that slaves were redeemed out of slavery and given freedom. So in other words... When people would go to war and they'd conquer, conquer another nation or whatever, they would take their people and they'd make them slaves. And the way they would get their, their freedom back is someone would have to pay a price. There would have to be a price. And once the price was paid, their freedom would be granted. Do you see where this is going? The theological definition for redemption is this. It's an act of, a, an act of God by which he, he himself pays a ransom for the price of sin, which has outraged his holiness. The good news is this. We have a problem. Now, I, I, 
I got thinking last week about my preaching, and I want to be very clear about this. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying that the Bible very simply says that we've missed the mark of a holy God, and we're off course. And if we continue off course, the Bible says that there's only one destination, and that's an eternal punishment in hell. There, 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 there's something else that is, is I, I want to say that we have a problem. We're guilty. Now, some of us might not even realize we're guilty. But I want to say this. All of us understand that we're in bondage. And last week I made a statement, I don't know if you caught it, that there's no such thing as free will because we're really, without Christ, we're bound to sin and slave. We're bound to our sin and to Satan. Paul's saying that we were in prison. We've been chained to slaves, as slaves to sin and our own destructive desires. And that in Christ, he has, brought, he has bought us back. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 20, 28, this is what Jesus said. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came to ransom us back from this, this uh, marketplace and, and rescue us from our slavery to sin. Let me quickly give you a few definitions that redemption or a few things that a redemption could mean in this text. First, it means that you're acquitted. So whatever you did, if you were redeemed, you were no longer guilty. The second thing is that your debt could have been canceled. Have you ever owed somebody money and just had that pressure? Maybe it's your house or you bought a new car or you made a big purchase and you had this huge amount of debt and you're just, you're just under the burden of debt. When, when, when redemption is applied to this debt, it means the debt was canceled. It was paid in full or it was forgiven. So you're no longer guilty. You're forgiven. The third thing is you've been reconciled. Have you ever been estranged with someone that you're kind of out of sorts with them? Have you ever had that to come back to being in good, a good relationship with them? In other words, you've reconciled it. You've made it right. That's what redemption means. The fourth thing that redemption could mean is adoption. In, in, the, in this Roman period, if you could go get a slave, son or daughter, and make them a part of your family, and when they became a part of their family, everything their family had was yours. You were entitled to it. I was thinking about my sister and my brother-in-law who adopted my niece. I still remember the day in October that she was born and they brought her home. And I, I, I'm so impressed by, by my sister and my brother-in-law because um, if you would see Mackenzie, she's, she's very dark. She's of African-American descent and she's being raised by two of the whitest people I know. But there's no difference in that home about who Mackenzie is. She's their daughter. Everything that is there. I've never even heard him talk about this until she was older and wanted to know. And the fifth thing that redemption could mean is to be set free. Again, I, I, I want to hurry. But do you understand what Jesus is doing in this redemption, the salvation? You've been acquitted or forgiven. 
Whatever you may have done or will do in the future has been forgiven. You are reconciled to this holy God. You who are not holy, you who are not blameless, are now holy and blameless. You have been reconciled in Christ. He has adopted you out of the slave market and made you his own son and daughter. And he said, everything in my kingdom is now yours. This great inheritance. And then finally, if we want to talk about being free, he set us free. We're no longer, no, no longer shackled to sin and shame in our destructive selves. Now, we're not completely glorified, so we fight that battle. We're getting better, right? We talked about it at the beginning. But here's what happens. Jesus has done that. How? In the text, through his blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Titus 2.14 says this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify himself a people for his own possession. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Under the law almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. But notice what it says, The free gift of God is eternal life. So here's the key point. How do we get redeemed? What price was paid? It was paid by the precious blood of Christ. That's how it was. We, I, sometimes I wonder if we believe that Jesus is just Captain America, the, the, the Marvel comic person, or the green machine, or the green light, the green lantern, whatever that is. He's not a mythological figure. He's not a movie star. He's the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, God incarnate, who came down, who shed his blood on a cross to pay a debt we couldn't. Do you really understand? It cost everything. It cost everything. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, I'm out of time. In our little book study, um, this week on the gospel, some of you joined the call. Is that here? Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and take the time. Forgive me. On page 67, Dr. Ortland, and I believe this is the reason I want to I want to bring this to our attention is because I'm afraid this is the form of Christianity most churches. I'm not indicting churches, so please understand I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying I'm scared. I'm concerned that this is how most of America sees Christianity at this point. On page 67, he calls it a moralistic, therapeutic deism. So he says this is the message. That God exists, so they believe in God, and watch over human life on earth. A quasi-sovereignty. God wants his people to be good, nice, and fair to treat each other. In other words, the golden rule, do unto others as they do unto you. It sounds biblical, right? Three, the, center, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Well, God is love, and God wants a perfect plan for you. God has a perfect plan for you, and he just wants you to be happy. God doesn't not want you to be happy, but four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. When we ask for prayer, please, please continue to pray for 
Aunt Mildred's colon. I'm not diminishing that. Please, I, I'm not. But, but God is not a grocery store. And prayer is just not to get our ways. He's not, he's not a genie. And five good people go to heaven when they die. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, there's no, not yet one good. This is a counterfeit faith. If you have that little book at home, I want to encourage you, if you've never read it, please dig it out and start reading it, a page at a time, a page at night. Again, I'm, I'm wrapping up here. What is the real salvation? It hit me yesterday. I want to use another song. If I were to die, I want it to be at my funeral. I believe. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah, or will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. Those words have to be penned by a person who understands how bad they are, but they are forgiven, justified, reconciled, and adopted and set free by this Christ that I'm talking about, this Jesus. And with each passing day, that song means that we're being confirmed, conformed into the image of this Christ, as Romans 8 says. I think it's when you come to this place this morning, and I don't know about you, it kind of feels a little odd in here, maybe it's because my grandkids are running around, but I, I don't know. But, but when I come into church this morning, and I know what Jesus has done for me, life is different. It should be different. I'm full of these riches of grace, and now I have something to praise Him for. I can't save myself. I can only trust in Christ, and I can do this because I know that nothing shall separate me from this love of Christ because I'm in Christ, and now I have something to sing about, and now I have something to live for, and now I can press on and keep going until God calls me on because I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. No matter how bad the world gets, no matter how great a pandemic may be, no matter how much financial ruin can come to me, no matter if I'm in chains, no matter if I get cancer, no matter if I've got some terminal illness, I can be like this because I can only imagine that one day when I shall see his face surrounded by his glory, all the sorrow will erase. Father, thank you for this word. I pray if anyone here doesn't know you, that you could speak to them as we sing. Come to bring them as your child. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.